Some people have also suggested maybe there are some clues in existing physics. Maybe the fact that there's a speed of light, for example, and that's put as a kind of a limiting, as a limiting factor on the simulation, just to make sure we don't have to simulate the entire universe at once and everything interacting with everything else at all times, that would just require too much computational power. Maybe quantum mechanics and the collapse of the wave function. Some people have suggested maybe this is there as a, uh, as something saying we only need to render the universe on observation. You know, a trick well known to video game designers that you only have to render the parts of the, uh, of the video game that people are interacting with. Chasing Consciousness. I really hope you're enjoying this second series. If you are, I will be so, so grateful if you can help me spread the word by sharing the show's uh, rating on iTunes and even if you can, reviewing us. For those of you who want to support my work more directly, please head over to Patreon on the link in the show notes and pledge whatever you can just to help me keep these shows coming hard and fast. You can also follow the show on Instagram and Facebook to be kept up. Uh, to date with all the new shows coming out and the themes we're exploring and the research and even join our community Facebook group to join this fascinating conversation and get your two cents worth in as well. So thank you so much for your support. It really makes it so worthwhile getting your feedback. So today we delve into the fascinating topic of virtual reality simulations and the extraordinary possibility that our universe is itself a simulation. For thousands of years, some mystical traditions have maintained that the physical world and our separated selves are an illusion. And now, only with the development of our own computer simulations and virtual worlds, have scientists and philosophers begun to assess the statistical probabilities that our shared reality could in fact be some kind of representation, rather than a physical place. As we become more open to these possibilities, other difficult questions start to come into focus. How can we create a common language to talk about matter and energy that bridges the simulated and the simulating worlds? Who could have created such a simulation? Could it be an artificial intelligence rather than a biological or conscious being? And do we have ethical obligations to the virtual beings we interact with in our virtual worlds? And to what extent are those beings and worlds real? The list goes on and is really mind-bending. Fortunately, to untangle all of our thoughts on this, we have one of the best-known philosophers of all things mind-bending in the world, Dr. David Chalmers, who has just released the book Reality Plus, Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy, about this very topic. Dr. Chalmers is an Australian philosopher, a cognitive scientist, specializing in the areas of philosophy of mind and philosophy of language. He's a professor of philosophy and neuroscience at New York University, as well as co-director of NYU's Center for Mind, Brain and Consciousness. He's the founder of the Towards a Science of Consciousness conference, which he coined the term in 1994, the hard problem of consciousness, which we have covered in detail in episode one with Susan Blackmore. And he thus kicked off a renaissance in consciousness studies, which has been increasing in popularity and research output ever since. Now, I've wanted to talk to a serious researcher about this since I had some intuitions about it as a young teenager. So I just can't wait to get into this. So strap in everyone and let's go. 
So, Dr. David Chalmers at NYU, welcome to Chasing Consciousness, and thank you so much for coming on the show. We're so excited to speak to you. Oh, thanks. It's a great pleasure to be here. So, David, I've got this little thing that I just really love to do because academics and scientists can seem so sort of distant and kind of up on a pedestal of high thought that I think it's really important for listeners to know that they're people, that they were kids too, and that they've been through all the same stuff that they have in their process of getting to, to work on all these ideas. So I wanted to ask about your first conscious memories, your first conscious thoughts, the big ideas that you remember from when you first started becoming conscious, whatever, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. What thoughts and questions do you remember from those early days? Yeah, um, you know, my first conscious thoughts are probably now beyond my memory. Um, you know, I, I was probably, I think I was probably thinking sometime in my first year or two, but uh, no, uh, no memories of what I was thinking then. The first thoughts I can remember, the first things I can remember, I remember sitting on the front lawn of our house waiting for my mother to come home when I was about age three or four. But that's not yet a philosophical thought. So, yeah, when were my first philosophical thoughts about consciousness and the mind? Here's one thing I remember very distinctly. When I was about 10 years old, I discovered that I had blurry vision in, uh, in one eye. Um, maybe I kind of had known this for a while, but it became clear I had, my vision was sharp in one eye and blurry in the other eye, so I got glasses. And this had the effect of giving me binocular vision for the first time, or at least for the first time in, in quite a while, because I don't know when this came along. So suddenly, both eyes were working, this had the effect of allowing me to see the world in 3D, in three dimensions. And the experience of this was just that the world popped out. I mean, it was already kind of three-dimensional beforehand, but it just, once I put on the glasses, it just popped out in depth, a bit like, you know, going to a, uh, going to a 3D movie. And I remember thinking, how is this possible? How can this happen? I understand roughly objectively how it is that processes in the brain could bring together the information from both eyes to produce a 3D model. Sure, I get all the objective stuff, but why do I experience that subjectively as the world popping out? How does that happen? That seems somehow like magic. In retrospect, that was a version of the problem of consciousness right there. Mm. Anything else that pops into mind, maybe from later, 14, 15, any of those first killer ones? Because at that age, we, we take it so seriously, don't we? Another thing is um, when I was younger is I had um, what people call synesthesia, which is basically um, cross-sensory experience. Some people experience this as letters having colors. For me, I experienced this as music having colors. So I would listen to a particular song or a particular chord, and I would experience it as having a color. Now, a lot of the time, actually, these, uh, these colors were... Kind of boring. They were very, very frequently dull olive greens and browns. Everything got mixed in. But every now and then, something would have a very pure and exciting color. I remember here, there, and everywhere by the Beatles was kind of bright red. And so this was kind of amazing. I just kind of took it for granted. I thought maybe, uh, maybe everybody 
has this. But this, again, is a kind of subjective experience. Um, how is it that you could explain this? And then actually, around age 20, it went away. Just one day I woke up and I realized, well, songs don't have colors anymore. What happened? I kind of, uh, I missed that. Actually, I gather it's quite common for synesthesia to go away after childhood. But yeah, it is and was a bit disappointing. It certainly is a very interesting phenomena and, and very stimulating to creatives. Now, listen, Dave, let's get down to brass tacks now. Now, before we get on to the big one, simulation and virtual reality, we need to quickly, for the listeners, just establish how we know things about the outside world to be real. I think it's called epistemology, this, this philosophy of what we are able to know. How do hard scientists, hard scientists, listeners, in the sense that they are able to, they're looking at the, the, the physical world outside and getting hard data rather than any interpretive data. So how do these hard scientists prove that the physical world is actually real? I'm not sure that anybody proves the, uh, the physical world is real. I mean, yeah, there is this philosophical problem of how do we know anything? is real. And in philosophy, this goes along with a movement known as skepticism. The skeptic says, we can't know anything about the external world. Yeah, does physics have to prove that the skeptic is wrong? Here's how I think happens, what happens a lot of the time in science. You basically take it as a grounded, a basic assumption that there is an external world. And you take it as an assumption that when you perceive something, it's probably there. If I perceive the, uh, you know, the needle on the dial pointing to a certain value, then that's probably happening in external reality, unless there's some reason to believe that it, uh, that something's going wrong. If there's evidence that there's an illusion, if there's evidence, there's conflicting evidence from your senses, then you don't accept that evidence. But by and large, I think it's just an assumption behind a lot of science that we trust our senses, except when they prove that they can't be trusted. So this means, I think, that actually a lot of science doesn't so much prove that the skeptic is wrong. It doesn't prove there's an external world. They basically make the assumption of that there's an external world, and then it turns out to be a fruitful hypothesis. Then you can actually build science and do science with it. So this means we do have this um, very effective framework of science, but we still have you know, philosophers behind it all who will ask the question, how can we know? that any of this is real. And uh, it does become a little bit of a sort of infinite regress, kind of get out of jail free card, doesn't it? It's like that, that actually almost it's pointless to talk about it. But it is an interesting backdrop to the conversation that we're going to go on to have now about virtual realities, isn't it? So the big one, simulation hypothesis. In your new book, Reality Plus, you, you examine this by new means new idea um, as far as I know, because I studied philosophy and religion, I, I think it dates right back to the Upanishads of, of Hinduism and their concept of samsara, this, this idea that the world is in some way an illusion and that selves are an illusion. However, recently it has become considered quite a real possibility in science because of our current age of computers and our early developments in virtual, in virtual reality. But the turning point came in the early 2000s when the respected philosopher Nick Bostrom wrote his famous paper proposing this possibility. David, do you think you could summarize what Bostrom was arguing and how mathematical probability plays a part in those arguments? Yeah, as you say, these ideas go back a very long way. In fact, I think you can find analogues 
of the idea that the universe is a simulation or prototypical versions of it um, in many of the great tr ancient traditions of philosophy. In, uh, in India, you mentioned uh, Indian philosophy. I think you'll find, yeah, the notion of Maya, of the world as an illusion, is very central to a lot of, uh, of Hindu uh, traditions, and you'll find many old folk tales that involve kind of simulated reality to illustrate that idea. In Chinese philosophy, um, you find Duangzhe telling the, uh, the story, how can I know that I am actually Duangzhe who dreamed he was a butterfly? For all I know, I may be a butterfly dreaming that he's Duangzhe. And this kind of raises the question, how do you know you're not dreaming right now? Another if you like, prototype for the idea that we might be living in a simulation. Plato, the ancient Greek philosopher, asked, yeah, maybe we're somehow living in a cave, just seeing shadows on the cave wall. Another, something, very, again, very similar to the simulation idea. Of course, the real, I mean, the modern, and Descartes, Rene Descartes said, how do you know you're not dreaming in the, in the 17th century? How do you know you're not dreaming? Uh, how do you know that an evil demon isn't fooling you by feeding you sensations? as of an external world when none of this is real. Another version of the simulation idea. Of course, all of these weren't yet the true computer simulation idea because nobody yet had computers. But then when computers come along in the mid 20th century, you very rapidly find versions of the, of the computer simulation hypothesis. I think I've tracked it down a little bit to maybe around uh, some science fiction novels around 1960 and one very, well-known novel, Simulacron, Simulacron 3 by Daniel Galloy came out in uh, 1964. And it was basically a Matrix-like story of, uh, of simulations within simulations. We're in a simulation, we make simulations. It's all done for, I don't know, purposes of some big marketing company. This was made into a, into a movie, um, World on a Wire, by Werner, the great German director, Werner Reiner Fassbender, in, uh, in 1973. Uh, so I think of this as, uh, you know, so these simulation ideas were really percolating from not too long after the, the advent of the computer. But yeah, come the 1990s, we then get to this, to uh, some people starting to argue seriously that we may be in a simulation. And I think maybe the first person to put forward this argument was, uh, was the roboticist and futurist Hans Moravec, in the 1990s, um, he wrote an article called Pigs in Cyberspace, where he said there's going to be many, many, as simulation technology develops, there's going to be many, many simulations in the history of reality, probably far more simulated people than unsimulated people. Uh, therefore, there's probably many, a whole lot of people having experiences like mine who are simulated, maybe just one original unsimulated version in base reality. So maybe I should, I should assign high probability to being simulated. And then a few years later, Nick Bostrom came along and really made this powerful by giving a kind of a mathematical analysis of a number of different, um, a number of different possibilities. And Bostrom argued, yeah, Bostrom argued that either we're in a simulation or that something has to happen to stop simulations in common. And the way Bostrom put it was either we're in a simulation or, or we'll go extinct or 
civilizations will go extinct before they have the capacity to build simulations or they will or civilizations will choose not to make the simulations. We said it's one of these three one of these three possibilities and gave a mathematical analysis of that. I think that really um, yeah, did lead a lot of people to take this simulation hypothesis quite seriously, not necessarily as science, but at the very least as philosophy and as a speculative hypothesis about the nature of our reality. Well, one of my earliest conscious thoughts when I was a teenager was about this improbability that the universe physically existed in some immense film studio, the next level up. And it seemed much more likely to me as a sort of naive teenager that the universe's dimensions of space and time would, to use the computer analogy, be stored and rendered via a computer program on a database the next level up. But that was a purely intuitive evaluation. How can you explain a bit more how philosophers go about scientifically evaluating these probabilities about these various possible natures of reality? I presume Bostrom came out saying that the simulation was the most probable. Actually, I think he said that there are three possibilities here and that he didn't know how to divide probabilities ah, okay. between them. Um, when I think about this, I uh, in, in my book when I discuss these topics, I make a case that it's maybe at least 25% because there's only so many ways it can turn out to be false. And each of those is probably no more than 50% probable. But the fact is, it is very hard to do this rigorously and it probably should not be considered science at this point. I mean, the perfect, let's distinguish two versions of the simulation hypothesis. One is that we're in a perfect simulation of a physical universe totally indistinguishable from a non-simulated universe, then probably we can never get direct evidence that that is, uh, that that is true. Because, uh, or to disprove that, because any evidence that you could get would be, uh, could be simulated. Part of the simulation. Yeah, exactly. Um, so if, this, if the simulation is really well done, we may never be able to get definitive evidence either way. So probably that's not science. Some people do consider though imperfect simulation hypotheses. Maybe there are shortcuts in the simulation. Maybe for example, they're building some approximations into the simulation. Some physicists have proposed that if we're living in a universe where the laws of physics are approximated, we should expect to be able to get some evidence of that by very fine-grained uh, measurements in physics. No one's actually found that evidence yet, but there is a thought to that effect. Some people have also suggested maybe there are some clues in existing physics. Maybe the fact that there's a speed of light, for example, that's put as a kind of a limiting, as a limiting factor on the simulation, just to make sure we don't have to simulate the entire universe at once and everything interacting with everything else at all times, that would just require too much computational power. Maybe quantum mechanics and the collapse of the wave function. Some people have suggested maybe this is there as a... Uh, is something saying we only need to render the universe on observation. You know, a trick well known to video game designers that you only have to render the parts of the uh, of the video game that people are interacting with. And that's certainly a question for many for many people thinking about this, isn't it? That it would make more sense computationally and inf at an information level to only render what conscious beings were seeing. People are already doing this with uh, with virtual reality technology. Um, it's actually a, a potential shortcut with VR not to, uh, not to produce um, very detailed images 
um, in your in your headset, but just to track where the eyes are and render only the bits of the eyes as the eyes are, are looking at. So yeah, this rendering idea may actually go quite deep in thinking about both the technology and the simulation idea. David, but while you mentioned we're on physics, on Chasing Consciousness, we've been evaluating the implications of quite a few new developments in physics for thinking about the nature of reality. For example, we've looked um, at the relativity of all points of space and time. We've been looking at entanglement of distant particles and um, the strange phenomena of the observer effect in quantum mechanics. In your opinion, which developments in physics have changed the way philosophers can argue for or against the simulation hypothesis? Is there, is there any physics that's relevant here? I think there are clues in physics. So yeah, I mentioned the speed of light maybe being at least consistent with something that people do to allow for more efficient simulation. Um, maybe the quantum collapse of the wave function is also something done for efficient Rendering. So those are uh, those are clues, but more generally, I think contemporary physics. The more and more you look at it, the more abstract it looks. It's basically abstract mathematical structure. Maybe in you know our naive picture of the world is just of masses and solid masses and space and time in an absolute three-dimensional space with one dimension of time. And over time, and you know Newtonian physics maybe supported that to some extent, but 20th century physics has really tended to, to overturn that naive picture of reality. I think of this as the picture of the Garden of Eden, the pre-theoretical view of the world that we grew up with, of primitive objects out there in three-dimensional space. Physics tells us about this very abstract world of a quantum wave function. Uh, nothing has a definite position at a, at a definite time of a relative... No absolute space and time, instead just relativistic space-time where nothing has a, has a you know, location independent of a, of a reference frame. And it basically becomes this very abstract world of, uh, of mathematics. And most physics is done these days as just via mathematics equa mathematical equations. So I think that very much opens up the world to the simulation idea. I mean, one idea that people take, have taken quite seriously is John Wheeler's idea of it from bit, that everything and physical reality could emerge somehow from the interaction of bits at a basic level. That you know, the world is a bunch of interacting bits, ones and zeros, and interaction of ones and zeros produces atoms and eventually produces us. That's an idea, that's a picture that's very amenable to the simulation hypothesis. Because you know, if we are living in a simulation, you might say this is a world where physical objects exist. They're just made of uh, they're just made of bits, computational processes at an underlying level. Maybe there's something even underlying that, underlying the computer running the simulation in the next universe up. But I do think that, um, yeah, the uh, this particularly this it from bit picture of uh, of reality, if taken seriously, provides a very useful lens on the simulation idea and, and provides further grounds for taking it seriously. So, David, just to go back to quantum physics for a moment, you mentioned the collapse of the wave function there, which is a reference, of course, to Wigner's interpretation of the wave particle duality. Now, this isn't really the consensus position. What's your take on the idea that this does explain this very, very strange observer effect in quantum mechanics? Well, it's part of a fairly standard 
formulation of quantum mechanics. Maybe the orthodoxy put forward by von Neumann in his uh, 1932 book on quantum mechanics that there's, you know, there's two things going on in quantum mechanics. There's an evolution of a wave function by what's called the Schrodinger equation. But there's also something that happens on measurement. When people make a measurement, you get some definite results and the wave function changes state. And that's called often called the collapse of the wave function. And many people view this idea that there's a collapse of the wave function on measurement as a kind of orthodoxy. So it's a version of what's called the, uh, the Copenhagen, Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. But um, no, but it's very mysterious. What is going on on measurement? How does wave function collapse occur? And this is called the measurement problem for quantum mechanics. And many, many, uh, many, many bottles of ink have been spilled on it. <laughs> um, what Eugene Wigner did in 1961 was to explicitly suggest, well, okay, what is measurement? It's an act of consciousness. So he suggested that when measurement collapses the wave function, this is actually conscious observation is bringing about wave function collapse. And he thought this might actually be a way that consciousness can affect the physical world, which is one of the great mysteries in philosophy. So he wrote a paper called Remarks on the Mind-Body Question, where he put forward this view of the role of consciousness in, external, in the external world. It's, yeah, it's fair to say it hasn't been a very popular view among physicists. You know, in the 1970s, it got associated with books like the Dancing Wuli Masters and the Tao of Physics and some spiritual ideas. That said, it's a view that I take seriously, and I think it deserves more attention than it's gotten. Recently, I actually co-authored a piece on this idea with, a, uh, with an old student of mine who's now a professor at at Chapman University in California, Kelvin McQueen. It was called Consciousness and the Collapse of the Wave Function. And we tried to see if we could mathematically work out this idea of consciousness um, playing a role in quantum mechanics. And the results were mixed. It turns out that uh, we made some progress in making the idea rigorous with mathematics, but our first and simplest way of doing it turned out to have a fatal flaw. Basically, it turned out to be very hard to see how consciousness would evolve in the early universe out of, uh, out of no consciousness. Also made it hard to see how, uh, how you could wake up from a nap going from a state of no consciousness to a state of consciousness. But we found, a, we found a, a, a way around this in the end. So I'm not sure that I believe this idea, but I do think it's an idea worth taking seriously. And for somebody obsessed by the place of consciousness in physical reality, I do think it's one of the more promising ideas we have for looking at how consciousness may have an effect in the physical world. I want to come back to information for a moment. You mentioned it now as you referenced uh, Wheeler's It from Bit. Information has been used a lot as a sort of wonderful hold-on term, though, that can include matter and energy and maths and ideas and even consciousness without getting bogged down too much in the difficulty of how they reconcile between each other. Do you find information theory a useful kind of analogy and useful way of thinking about things to get to try and get as closest to a unified theory? Is it, is it a useful concept? I do find it useful, but it's also potentially dangerous and confusing. Uh, the word information means many things to, uh, to many people. I think our ordinary notion of information 
is information is something like knowledge, you know, knowledge of facts. I know that the year is uh, 2021. That's a, uh, that's a fact. I know that the president of the United States is Joe Biden. That's a fact that I have knowledge of. This is what I call semantic information. Um, you know, you acquire information about things. That's information as facts. But there's also this notion, which is very prevalent in contemporary technology, as well as in contemporary science, um, of information as bits, as, you know, basically as ones and zeros. And I think this is actually quite a different notion from the ordinary notion, because these bits needn't be about facts at all. They can just be meaningless. The bits don't need to carry meaning. You could, have, you could be looking at a chessboard with a certain structure, just zeros and ones interacting. So I call this structural information. Bits are structural information and facts are semantic information. And then sometimes they come together. Um, sometimes you have bits encoding facts, as in a database. And then you get uh, you know, the heart of modern information science. But I do think you've got to be very careful not to, uh, not to run things together. Otherwise, you say, okay, oh, we can explain consciousness in terms of information because it's all just a bunch of bits. But then somehow you get the slide to semantic information, to knowledge, to facts. And that goes further. That said, I like the idea of formulating our theories of, say, in physics, in terms of, say, bits. And I think that um, even looking at, say, the structure of the brain in terms of the interaction of bits is a promising way to build a theory of, of consciousness. So, um, so back in my first book, The Conscious Mind, 25 years ago, I argued for what I called a double aspect theory of information, the kind of structural information encoded in the brain could have another aspect that corresponds to consciousness. And since then, some theorists, most notably Giulio Tononi, have gone further of this kind of idea, developing a mathematical theory of consciousness, roughly as a structure of bits, um, but they get integrated in certain special ways. And I find that promising. So I think, yes, information is a useful tool, but you have to be very, very careful with what and, you mean by information. And Wheeler, Wheeler took that sort of further. He kept it vague when he spoke about his participatory universe. It seems to be um, a sort of middle road that a lot of physicists are more comfortable with than some sort of idea that consciousness is not something you can get behind, as, as some of the early quantum physicists found, like Erwin Schrödinger um, and Max Planck. But this participatory universe seems to be sort of more, more accessible. Do you think that Wheeler's idea that consciousness is somehow entangled within the physical world, do you think that that leads us to a panpsychist position or does it leave us somewhere in the middle? I've never really understood Wheeler's specific formulation of it from bit in terms of a participatory universe. He talks about, you know, asking 20 questions of nature, um, that somehow that physics is constituted by answers to questions that we ask. That does have something of an idealist flavor to me, where somehow our conscious observations and questions play a role in constituting reality. It also seems to bring in notions of semantic information, knowledge, what we know about the world constitutes reality. Now, maybe Wheeler didn't mean that. That's always been, his notions here have always been slightly obscure to me. I think there's a simpler version, though, of the it from bit idea that needn't bring in 
consciousness. That's just this idea of interactions of patterns of zeros and, and ones. A bit like in, you know, you can have these, uh, sometimes people have these video game like cellular automata where zeros and ones interact by specific rules. And the idea that a layer like that might be underlying um, underlying physics, I think is some way, in some ways more straightforward, doesn't have to bring in the observer, um, but nonetheless is promising. Now then, on the other hand, it's not, it's not going to be panpsychist or idealist either. That view will not necessarily put consciousness at the basis of reality. So if you want to combine the it from bit idea with consciousness at the basis of reality, I guess you could go for the idea of these little bits or flashes of consciousness. Some panpsychists like ideas like this with flashes of consciousness at the basic level of reality, but I think that would have to be a uh, it would have to be fairly speculative for now. Well, yes, and I think that Wheeler, when he he was being in vague intentionally, because he clearly, you know, uh, didn't know, and and Sue Blackmore, um, a great fan of yours, by the way, she spoke very, very highly of you in our in our episode on David's uh, famous phrase, "the hard problem of consciousness." Do look that up, listeners, if you want to learn more about David's early work on that. Um, she said it's very important to have a don't know mind when you're studying consciousness, which I thought was was a very, very beautiful and intelligent thing to say because we, and I assume you agree here, David, we really will never know and can never know and we can't test it. Is that actually the case? I, I'm an optimist about consciousness. I think one shouldn't be too confident. It's very early days in the study of consciousness. Um, we're still working through all kinds of new ideas, um, both in philosophy and in science. I think there's many ideas yet to come. So I think at this point, it's totally appropriate to have a, yeah, the, a fairly agnostic attitude. There are some theories I think I know can't work, but there are, there's still a lot of space for uh, possible theories to develop. And I divide my credence between you know, a number of different possible options. Mm. Um, but that's it. I also leave a lot of, credence for possible new ideas in the future that we don't have yet and possible revolutions of thought. We all know that there are scientific revolutions come along now and again. I think it's, we're probably one or two revolutions away from a full understanding of consciousness. But I certainly don't rule out the idea that at the end of the day, after a scientific revolution or two, we could have the insight that leads us to say, okay, well, this is just the most compelling view of consciousness. Well, I very much hope so. So listen, back to your book, Reality Plus. In the book, you take on virtual reality, our own simulations, if you like, and you argue that these worlds are as valid as our own real world. How do you arrive there, and what are the ethical implications for the way we're developing virtual reality? Yeah, so my slogan summing up the arguments of the book is virtual reality is genuine reality. You can start with the simulation idea. Just say we're in a giant simulation. Some people say this means the universe is fake or fictional or an illusion. I try to argue, in fact, no, if we're in a simulation, all the objects around us still exist. I'm still in a world with tables and chairs and buildings and people and so on. It's just that these things are ultimately made of bits at an underlying level. It's kind of a version of the it from bit idea. If we're in the simulation, we should accept the it from bit metaphysics where the objects around us are computational. But I would argue they're still real. They're still concrete things one's interacting with 
being made of bits is no worse than being made of quantum mechanics or all the various other abstract entities one finds in modern physics. So starting there with the simulation hypothesis, I want to say, okay, virtual reality can be genuinely real. And then I would extend that to the kind of the more down-to-earth virtual realities that, we, uh, that we're dealing with with today's technology, you know, the kind of thing you see through a uh, VR headset, for example, like the, uh, like the Oculus Quest um, that I've got here, or even the kind of things that you might experience in some video games, although it works better if it's immersive. I want to argue, even in these cases, when you're interacting with a virtual world, you're interacting with real digital objects. And the fact that they're digital and not ordinary physical objects doesn't mean they're not real. So ultimately, I want to use all this to argue that one can, in fact, live a meaningful life inside a virtual world and a virtual reality, things being virtual and not an obstacle to their being meaningful, for example. So let's imagine for a second that we're in one of your the, the virtual reality worlds. We're all wearing those funky headsets that are soon going to become commonplace in all our homes. And one of the program characters walks in to tell us something. Would we have, following your model, an ethical responsibility to treat that character well and, and with respect as, as they're as real as anyone out in, in the real world outside? I think it probably depends on the case, you know, what kind of, uh, what kind of video game character this is. If it's just your average NPC, non-player character, which is just governed by a simple algorithm and a script, the kind of thing you might find in existing video games today, then I'm not sure this is really going to be a creature that we would attribute consciousness to. It's probably much more like a yeah, simple chatbots of the kind we have right now, I think are almost certainly not, uh, not conscious and don't have rights. And the, 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 the non-player characters in current video games are mostly like that. On the other hand, we could go to a future where the non-player characters are actually running very advanced AI algorithms and have have algorithms as complex as our brains, and then I think all bets are off. They may well, in fact, be conscious beings. I mean, the, this is illustrated beautifully in the recent movie Free Guy. I don't know if you saw that one, but the main character, played by Ryan Reynolds, uh, basically realizes that he's a non-player character in a video game. Um, and all this going on around him is a uh, video game going on, but he's received somehow a boost of machine learning. Um, so he's actually somehow become conscious. And I think it's very clear that he has rights. And in the movie, that's the point which is actually depicted. Yeah, non-player characters have rights too. If they're conscious, then I think they have moral status and they have rights. So my own view is a sufficiently advanced AI system may um, may be conscious. If, for example, if it's a perfect simulation of our brain, I would argue that it will be conscious. So if your non-player characters are, are advanced enough, I think they certainly do, in principle, have rights analogous to the kind that humans have. Well, this, this brings us to this hot topic of whether AIs uh, will be conscious. And, and it's a roaring debate at the moment. I mean, there really is. It's very, very difficult to, to fall on one side or the other because there's just so many people weighing in and with, with such brilliant range of arguments. Many argue that AIs will just become so good at copying our conscious behavior that we won't be able to tell the difference. And perhaps the important thing there is that at that point, the AI would think they were conscious, very similar to, to the Reynolds character you just mentioned. They would think they were conscious, even if they weren't, because they'd become so good at copying it. 
then surely we would have this ethical responsibility to treat them well. Um, presumably, this is a little bit ethically difficult because a lot of those virtual realities are being created in order to do unethical things without the retribution of being in the real world or to do dangerous things, which uh, including killing those characters, which again, you wouldn't be able to do in the real world. I mean, surely if you're arguing these are real worlds and these future uh, AI characters are, are have rights, surely that really makes a lot of these future programs quite questionable. It certainly does, yeah. If it turns out that the characters that we create in our simulated universes are conscious, then every time we create one of these simulations, we are, in effect, playing God and creating conscious beings. And I think, you know, this is not a power that should be used lightly. So I think in the long term, there's almost certainly going to have to be ethical regulations here about the creation of universes and certainly most obviously about the creation of universes with lots of suffering if you're um, creating beings who are living miserable lives and that's potentially monstrously unethical but even in the even in the positive case where they're having positive lives it's not a power you want to be used easily I mean, it's interesting it really does depend here on like the nature of consciousness and on theories of consciousness there are some theories where it would be possible to build a simulation of a human being that's not, in fact, conscious. So uh, Giulio Tononi's integrated information theory. Tononi actually argues that a simulation of a conscious brain but on a von Neumann architecture would not actually be conscious, it would behave in a similar way, but it wouldn't actually be conscious. I don't actually agree about this, but just say, um, just say this view is right. It does open up a possibility for designing simulations. Make sure that when you design your simulations, you build them on von Neumann architectures or something so that the simulated creatures in your simulations are not in fact conscious. They'll behave in a very similar way, but they won't be conscious. They'll be, they'll be what philosophers call zombies. Uh, there'll be nothing going on inside despite, the, uh, despite all the behavior. And you could argue that zombies like this don't in fact have moral status or rights. There's no problem with mistreating a being that has no subjective experience of the world. So arguably, if this theory of consciousness turned out to be right, that might provide one route to uh, to coming up with ethical simulations. Of course, there's a whole lot of ifs in there. Mm. And the, the, a question that's being begged here would be, you know, who who is the creator of this uh, this simulation? If if there is a creator, and and rather than speculating about that, I just wanted to ask about the possibility that it could be an AI itself because i mean we have a lot of ais that are for example monitoring our our climate uh, simulations isn't it possible that this 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 simulation is being uh, run by an ai and you know you and they've got this wonderful chapter that made me laugh a lot at the title is god a hacker in the next universe up. I mean, it could be a hacker, it could be a teenage kid in a basement, but I mean, equally, it could be an AI, couldn't it? Yeah, in fact, it's arguably quite likely that it's an AI because AIs are potentially going to be so powerful, maybe they'll be able to run a million simulations in the background while doing, while doing other things. Yeah, it is, I mean, the, the creator of a simulation really does have a godlike status with respect to that simulation, if we create simulations where 
gods, potentially, of that simulation. And if we're in a simulation, then, yeah, our simulators have a, presumably have some kind of godlike status with respect to us. So here, suddenly, theology becomes very relevant, you know, trying to figure out the character of God. This potentially leads to a field we can call simulation the- theology, <laughs> trying to figure out the character of the, uh, of the simulator. And, you know, as with ordinary theology, it's hard to do, but maybe you can pick up on clues or maybe the simulator could try it, could, uh, could convey something of their nature to us. I think for now, we just don't know. But I think, yeah, it's entirely possible that if we are in a simulation, maybe this is just one of a batch of a million simulations, maybe being set up overnight by uh, someone to run and run all these universes and gather statistics in the morning. If so, you know, Maybe this AI who created us isn't even paying attention. They're just going to come back and come come back in the morning and see how we did. This question of worlds within worlds, no simulations within simulations. It strikes me that if we look at this idea of a simulation and one world up, we have whatever operating system, whatever creature is is has created and is running this this simulation. But I I wanted to ask David and. Um, you know, this is a question that is very unpopular in philosophy, this idea of the sort of the argument by design for the existence of God, that when we look at this absurd level of complexity and intelligence um, of the universe in which we live and the extraordinary fine-tuning of the, of the way that that's led to the evolution of life, um, don't we have a problem the whereby it's very, very difficult to get around the argument by design because it's, you know, by by necessity, that one level up, that simulation must be more complex in order to have created a simulation of our complexity. How do we get around this when we're talking to materialists who are absolutely convinced that, that this has evolved completely by chance and not via any intelligence? Well, if the simulation hypothesis is true, then there is a very clear sense in which all this is designed. The simulation was uh, was designed. Um, you know, I don't think any. I don't have a knockdown argument that the simulation hypothesis is true. So I'm not giving a version of the argument from design. But certainly, I think insofar as we have reason to take the simulation hypothesis seriously, it also gives us reason to take the argument from design seriously for a creator. It's also worth noting that, you know, does all does this argument really support the existence of a traditional god? Rather, well, than, you know, rather than a teenage hacker or, exactly. an, or an AI. Yeah. People sometimes talk about naturalistic theology, a kind of theology consistent with science. I think quite a few people who find themselves thinking about the simulation hypothesis find themselves saying, okay, well, this is a god that I could tolerate even given my naturalistic views. The God need not be a supernatural God, like you know, the teenage hacker in the next universe up is not a supernatural God, nor is an AI putting together a simulation. This could all be the result of perfectly natural processes. We may, in fact, ourselves create worlds like this, simulations like this in the future and become gods of that world without there being anything supernatural about that. So I think some of the people who want to resist uh, who want to resist supernatural gods um, end up being quite a lot more sympathetic to the idea of, of potential simulators. Um, you know, what a traditional theologian would make of all this, I'm less sure about. 
Well, that's a very, very good point, isn't it? It does make the whole thing a lot less uncomfortable for, for atheists, no doubt. Um, but it does also bring on yet an, another sort of problem. And, and earlier as you were talking, um, I was thinking of the Black Mirror episode with the, uh, with the, um, the tech programmer who has his own little Star Trek program, which he goes into in his spare time. And he's got these little copies of his colleagues who he kind of torments in his own little domination. Um, a brilliant episode, if anybody hasn't seen that. I mean, obviously very disturbing, like most of Black Mirrors, but a brilliant, brilliant episode. USS Callister. Yeah. Presumably, you know, we have a sort of reverse argument by design problem, which is this thing that actually, my God, maybe the the creator of that simulation actually has some serious ethical issues. I mean, if we look around at some of these problems of suffering that are used as arguments against the argument by design, really, the world really is full of some really, really extraordinary uh, incongruences that could actually be an argument for, well, a bastard for a god. Yeah, um, this is the traditional argument from evil. There's so much evil in the world that God could not possibly be uh, benevolent and hoping for the best for us. I mean, they say, well, if God is really omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good, there wouldn't be this kind of evil in this world. So, you know, so the, the existence of evil means that uh, we, we don't have a benevolent God. And yeah, one alternative, of course, is yeah, the, the creator of the world in USS Callister, the Black Mirror <laughs> episode, is a uh, is has a godlike status, but is quite clearly a psychopath. <laughs> so that is a psychopathic god who created this world in part to make uh, to make creatures uh, to make creatures suffer. So one possibility is that our god is a uh, is a psychopath. But you know, I don't know. There is suffering in this world. There's a lot of good too. It's also entirely possible that the creator of this simulation. It's just morally neutral. Maybe running a running a science experiment to see how things go. Maybe they even got it past ethics guidelines. Maybe the ethics guidelines say you can create a simulation as long as there's a net balance of positive over negative experience. And yeah, that's consistent with there being a lot of bad as long as there's more good. Or it could be a simulation in an ethics department of philosophy, you know, where they're literally saying, Well, listen, let's let's leave them to it and see who comes out on top. <laughs> Yeah, you know, this is the kind, let's let's get them speculating about simulations right now. Maybe we'll, we'll put two of them right now on a podcast <laughs> talking about simulations and see what see what ideas what these ideas come to. Yeah, speculating too much about simulations can kind of um turn you into some kind of uh, egomaniac where suddenly you think, "Oh, maybe it's just a simulation of just me." <laughs> I'm writing a book about simulation. Isn't it really likely that and the simulators might have set up a universe just like that with somebody writing a book about simulation. <laughs> Listen, I wanted to come back briefly before we get on to the, shall we say, the sort of the crux of the matter, the juicy one, which is value itself. Um, I just wanted to quickly go back to this idea of, of AI as it gets gets past AGI, um, in it, this possibility that it could become conscious, which is really, really rather difficult to know. Um, it seems to me that with this question of evol evolving AI into ever further complexity, it could potentially become conscious. We have quite a similar problem to do with the emergence of human consciousness, which is obviously hotly debated in, in philosophy, psychology, and neuroscience. 
you know, I'm quite a fan of Strawson's argument that it seems unexplainable that consciousness can sort of magically jump out of nowhere, out of non-consciousness, and that it seems more likely that some sort of building blocks uh, of consciousness have somehow always been fundamental and present in the physical world. Surely this idea of artificial intelligence is as valid as conscious intelligence. You know, I'm following your argument here about this idea that virtual reality is the same as, as real reality, if we want to call it like that. Don't we see the similar sort of problem that that it, if if artificial intelligence were to be able to evolve to become conscious, in some way there would have been a magical jump there? It is. I mean, I think the problem of consciousness is just as strong in the case of biological systems and in the case of artificial systems. So yeah, it is mysterious and magical to think that how can an artificial system be conscious? But it's just as mysterious and magical to think, how could a biological system be conscious? You know, how do, how does silicon do it? How do neurons do it? Those two questions for me are on a par, and they're both versions of the hard problem of consciousness. How can we ex understand consciousness or explain it, how it arises from a physical basis? I guess I would say that I don't see that AI is any worse off here in principle than biological, uh, than biological consciousness. If one of them can do it, the other one can do it, but there is a mystery in uh, in both cases. So in my own work, I've tried to argue for artificial consciousness by starting with a biological consciousness, like some someone with a brain, like us, who's conscious, and then imagining replacing the neurons one at a time by silicon chips that function the same until you end up with an all silicon system. And I would argue that's very likely to be conscious, but that doesn't solve the hard problem. That's just a starting with a conscious system that we know is conscious. It doesn't explain consciousness. So either, I think the alternatives are either consciousness is built in at the ground level of physical reality, and then somehow that, so it was there at the beginning of the evolutionary process, and then somehow our consciousness is a combination of that, or consciousness is something fundamental and irreducible at a higher level of reality. Maybe it's strongly emergent as some philosophers say, basically it's a, there's physics and then there's consciousness and they're separate from each other. And maybe there's some scientific way in which consciousness depends on the physics. I guess either way, I, I like the idea that consciousness will be most deeply tied to information and that information can be present both in biological and in artificial systems. But it does raise the question of whether all information carries some consciousness, in which case you've got the Hans view that consciousness is everywhere, or whether only some information carries consciousness, in which case you have something more similar to a kind of a, a dualist view where consciousness just accompanies only certain special physical systems. Mm. And, and have AI developers and robot developers worked out a way of testing for subjective experience in AIs? I mean, Sophia is our, our best example yet. Has anyone asked her if she has subjective experiences? Um, I talked to Sophia, the robot, at one point, and, you know, it's quite compelling and natural to attribute consciousness to her because you feel, in talking to this robot, a lot like you're talking to a human. It's not because of any particularly impressive AI. It's actually because of a very impressive physical embodiment, very good animatronic puppeteers who managed to build this robot a lot like, a, lot like a human. 
I think her basic AI software is much closer to just ordinary chatbot software. Of course, the classic test is the Turing test. You have a conversation with an AI and see if you can distinguish it from a human. If not, people think there's at least a, a prima facie case that the AI is conscious. Some people have started to think more about this possible tests for consciousness. I quite like the idea of um, asking the, uh, the AI about its consciousness and seeing if it gets philosophically puzzled by this. The philosopher Susan Schneider has called this the artificial consciousness test. See if the, uh, the AI starts you know, um, raising questions like, well, I know I'm just a bunch of silicon circuits, but I feel like so much more. I could imagine a zombie robot who was like me but didn't have consciousness. Um, and so if the, robot, if the AI turns out to have those intuitions, Maybe that's um, some evidence. But the fact is, it's very early days yet, and we have nothing that could be considered definitive evidence. The best evidence we have that any, another human is consciousness is what they say is conscious, is what they say. So maybe that's the best we have to go on right now with AI. For I'm more, curious. we need a good theory of consciousness. I'm curious how you feel so sure that eventually AIs will be consciousness. Surely, surely even at that level of advancement, where they've just become so good at copying it from all points of view, then surely they would believe they were conscious. You know, maybe we wouldn't, does that, does that add up to the same thing as being conscious, having the subjective experience of believing that you are? Is that your argument? Well, if you have a subjective experience, you're conscious uh, by my lights. I guess the worry is that these AIs might not have any subjective experiences. They might believe it in the sense that they say it and that they shall judge it and report it, but no one is home experiencing any of this. And this would be the case where an AI system is a philosopher's zombie. Uh, there's just nothing going on on the inside. Yeah, and I can't prove that AI systems won't be conscious. So I think, yeah, I, I wouldn't say anything with full confidence here. The basic question is either AI system, just say we build AI systems that are functionally very much like us, then either there'll be conscious AIs or there'll be zombie AIs. I think there are some reasons to think that consciousness is tied to things like structures of information, which make me more sympathetic with the conscious AI idea. But while we don't understand consciousness and while we don't have a true theory of consciousness, I think we do have to hold both possibilities open. I mean, I quite like the idea of developing super intelligent AI to see if it can then come up with a, a better theory of consciousness than we can. After all, it'll be so much smarter. But if you're right, maybe it'll just be a super intelligent zombie AI that thinks it's conscious and will come up with a totally, uh, totally misleading uh, theory of consciousness for us. That would, be a, that would not be a great outcome. Yes. And of course, we do always have to consider the possibility that our own subjective experience is some form of illusion, as, as Sue Blackmore and Dan Dennett are arguing. Um, something that I, you know, speaking to her, found very, very convincing, although I couldn't feel it intuitively. It's a serious view that consciousness is an illusion. I take it, it's unbelievable, impossible to believe that I'm not conscious, really. But then a really good illusionist theory might actually tell me why the brain produces this belief so constantly, so uh, so definitely, and makes it impossible to believe that I'm not conscious. So I at least take the theory seriously, even though it's one that I reject. Mm, I, I have to say, I've, I've been forced to do the same, um, just just to make sure that we're keeping, keeping all of the options open, because as, if we can't falsify it, we have to consider it. 
Okay, so on to the really juicy. We've touched on to the ethics of virtual reality. Now, I want to get on to value. In this discussion of, of the real and the virtual, probably the biggest question of all is, is how do we assess what is important, what is good, what is, what is not, what is appropriate, what is not. First of all, before we get to value itself, is it right to say that in order to have the subjective experience of value, we need to be conscious, right? That's true. Well, to have any subjective experience, you have to be conscious. For me, consciousness just is subjective experience. Mm. So anyone with a, with a subjective experience of value is by definition conscious. But there are probably subjective experiences that aren't subjective experiences of value. I mean, the paradigm subjective experiences of value are things like pleasure and pain, happiness and, uh, and sadness, which are experiences of positive value and experiences of negative value. And I would, you know, a lot of people want to say these are especially important when it comes to value itself. And it does seem that beings with subjective experience of positively and negative, uh, negatively valued states like this, that plays, uh, yeah, some very special role in what makes beings matter. I mean, I touched on this problem earlier when I was speaking about the fact that quite often uh, virtual worlds, virtual realities, games, um, online experiences, whatever you want uh, to choose to talk about this, we have this problem that quite often people get around ethical issues in, in our world by retreating into these virtual worlds in order to play out their unethical behaviors in a safe space where they're not actually harming anyone. Does your approach to say that these are real worlds and that these advanced non-player AIs uh, are real people with rights, does, how, how do we navigate this issue of value when we're actually in virtual reality and obviously designing virtual reality? How do we navigate the issue of value? Well, I do think that one thing I argue in the book is something that a lot of people accept, that you need consciousness to be a subject with moral status that can basically be a subject of value, a center of value. A pure zombie system without consciousness doesn't uh, is not a locus of value. So because it's got no moral compass, it's got no reference point. It's not even the moral compass. If it doesn't have subjective experience, nothing can really ultimately matter to it. Can make it. I mean, I think you know you could have a psychopathic AI with no moral compass, but it could still be happy or frustrated, and it would still be a moral subject. It would be a what we call a moral patient, someone that you can hurt or harm, even if it wouldn't be a moral agent because it was psychopathic. <laughs> so the question is, what makes someone a moral patient, someone that you can hurt or harm? And I would argue that the fundamental forms of hurting and harming are effects on consciousness. But it does mean then that, uh, so insofar as you build your simulations and no one is conscious, then you're not hurting or harming anybody. And arguably value doesn't come into the equation, but the moment there are conscious subjects in your VR, then these are locuses of value, and you have to you have to think ethically. And you know, Robert. Then it could, then the, all kinds of questions arise: is what counts as value? The philosopher Robert Nozick introduced the thought experiment of the experience machine, which is a machine where we get to have wonderful, happy, pleasurable experiences for our whole life, 
but we're just floating in a tank. And furthermore, all of this was pre-programmed. And Nozick wanted to say, ah, that's not really the life that we want, even though it's got a lot of pleasurable experience because we want to really do things and experience an autonomous life and so on. So I think, yeah, there's more to value than just having the right conscious experiences, but that's at least one central part of it. I would argue that in a genuine virtual reality where we, which we enter and where we act autonomously and exert free will and choose our own future, where it's not all pre-programmed, then we could actually have a perfectly meaningful life full of, full of value and that, yeah, maybe in the, in the virtual realities of the future, people will lead fully valuable lives in virtual worlds. And do you think that in the same way, there's a very important debate going on in AI development now about the possibility of military AI and, you know, AI going wrong, which, you know, Max Tegmar is a, is a big fan, says very clearly, bear in mind, that's not AI that's bad. It's, it's badly using it and badly programming it. Uh, very important to bear that in mind in this debate, because a lot of people actually demonize the technology itself. But, but it, presumably, we have exactly the same question when we're talking about the creation of virtual worlds, don't we? Just really, we have a very, very strong moral responsibility to lay out the, well, actually to choose some rules, basically some limits beyond which we really shouldn't be allowed to go. Is that something that you go, would go so far as to say? Oh, sure. No, I think a lot about, uh, you know, how to design and govern a virtual world, what kind of rights people have, how they should be organized. I mean, many of the great questions of social and political philosophy arise, how do you design a fair society, arise in thinking about virtual worlds. I mean, one very topical question right now is, should they be run by corporations? You know, this is a kind of, should Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook or Meta be running the uh, the metaverse of of virtual worlds? Um, I think, you know, we have to remember the people who, are designing these virtual worlds are very powerful or in a way gods of these worlds as we've been saying do we really want um already these corporations have control over a lot of our lives where the digital universe is a large part of our lives once we're mostly in virtual worlds then the creators of this universe will have control over very large parts of our lives i think that has to be very strongly i'm sure in the long run this is going to be very strongly regulated and i think that we're going to need to have virtual worlds which are not controlled by corporations, for example, and raises all kinds of questions as to yeah, how the virtual worlds of the future will be run. Will there be kind of a people's metaverse where we get to, uh, to design, people basically get to design the worlds they live in for themselves? Will there be state-run virtual worlds? Will there be corp- I think we're probably going to find there are new forms of governance, but it's going to require a lot of ethical and policy reflection that I think we've just only started to do. And are there organizations out there like, you know, like Musk and Alan did with OpenAI that are starting to raise this and are pumping money into this question and making sure that it's on the agenda long before any of these, shall we say, ethically questionable virtual worlds go online? It's a good question. I think there are are a lot of people thinking about this. Are there organizations at that level thinking about, you know, ethical VR? I think people perceive it as being somewhat further in the future than AI. AI has made massive advances the last five or 10 years. So suddenly, um, yeah, I mean, self-driving cars are among us. Autonomous weapons are being developed now. 
Um, whereas VR and virtual world technology is still somewhat primitive. People aren't living most of their lives there. But I think um, it would not surprise me at all to see some serious organizations devoting to, devoted to yeah, regulation and policy reflection develop over the next few years. I mean, I think groups like, you mentioned Techmark's Future of Life Institute, they certainly think about this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's probably fair to say that it seemed a little bit less urgent than AI so far, but now with the, the Facebook metaverse suddenly being very, very prominent, that's already con- prompted a lot of ethical and political reflection. I expect to see a lot of that over the next few years. Well, David, it remains only for me to say thank you so much on behalf of the listeners for helping us to navigate this in such a fun and an accessible way. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I really wish you the very, very best with the release of the book. And uh, go out and buy this, listeners, because it is stuffed to the brim with fascinating ideas. David Chalmers, thank you very, very much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks, Freddie. Thanks for a great conversation. 